You're listening to a North Valley Community Church podcast. For more information and resources, visit us online at northvalleychurch.org. Well, good morning. Good to be with you guys. My name is Ryan. For those of you that are new, so glad that you've joined us. Uh, We're going to be continuing on with our series this morning in Ephesians, and we're going to go through the whole chapter. So uh, get ready, Ephesians chapter 2. If you've got a Bible, you can open it up on your app. We'll have the verses along the screen as well. Um, But before we get started, I'd like to start out with having a little bit of fun. And so I want to share with you a, a nice corny joke for you. There was a Catholic priest, a Protestant minister, and a Jewish rabbi, and they all wanted to see kind of who did who could do the best job. So they each one of them they go into the woods and they find a bear, and their challenge is to attempt to convert the bear. So they later get together, and the priest begins, and he says, "The priest says, when I found the bear, I read to him the catechism." And then I sprinkled him with holy water, and next week is his first communion. The other guy says, I found a bear by the stream, says the minister, and and, and I got to preach God's holy word. And the bear was so mesmerized, I had the privilege to baptize him, full immersion. And then they both look down, and they see the rabbi who's lying in a gurney, a body cast, and looking back, the priest uh, the, the, the rabbi says, maybe I shouldn't have started with circumcision. <laughs> that would be a bad day. Hey, we're going to jump into God's word today and we're going to learn from the past. Um, hopefully not live in the past. Every time I go back to visit my friends and family back in Little Rock, my wife, moved, my, my wife and I moved out here 10 years ago uh, this summer, and, uh, but every time I go back, I'll meet an old pocket of friends and family, and it's like my life is frozen in the 90s, and they, all they remember is a lot of my high school friends is kind of like what I used to be like. You, you know what I'm saying? You, you meet up with family or friends, and they're like, oh, you remember when? And they tell this story, and you're like, no, 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 I've changed. I'm, I'm a different person now. The reality is, is that we can easily become defined by our past just because we got people that know us from our past and they want to keep us in the past. And that might not be bad for you, but it's bad for me because the person I was and the person I am, very different people. And, and, and so it, I don't get on Facebook a whole lot, but when my friends look me up, sometimes I'll say, hey, I, I see that you got a family, you love Jesus, that's crazy. Do you remember when? It's like they want to keep me in the past. The old, the old Ryan is gone. The new has come. What happened? I met Jesus. So here's what I want to challenge you as we all maybe need to take a little bit of a look this morning about kind of the life of the past, sins of the past, things that we've done, and then see who we are in light of what God says. Uh, the Apostle Paul says numerous times, here's who you are in Christ, but don't forget, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget your past. So you got two options. Either A, from the past, you, we, we either learn from it and we get refined by it, or we don't learn from it and then we get defined by it. See, the, the, the past troubles, the past 
issues in your life, you've got two options. One is, is you learn from the mistakes, the challenges you've done, and you say, God, I want you to refine me, change me, help me to be a different person, a better person, and we're refined by it. Or you don't learn from it at all, and then you become defined by it. Let me just give you a word of encouragement. Don't ever give your past the power to define who you are. Don't ever give the past the power to define who you are. Who you are is not based on your past. It's based on who, what Christ has done in your life. And the past cannot define you. You've got to, as the Apostle Paul is going to teach us, is you've got to realize how God wants to use your past for his purpose. He wants to use your past. What, what's your story? Were, were you the prodigal son? Were you the one that had the good mom and dad and you ran away from the faith and you, you wasted it in licentious living? Or maybe you've been the legalist your whole life. You've always been the rule keeper. And you found yourself empty on the inside. And, and your story is a purpose for God's glory. And so what I want to challenge us to do this morning is I want us to realize the importance, first of all, that we've got to learn from our past. I'm laying down a foundation for the Apostle Paul's teaching to sit in your heart steady this week. You've got to realize that your yesterday's troubles are perhaps your future testimony. Whatever your trouble was in the past, that perhaps is part of your great God-impacting, God-glorifying testimony for the future. Whatever your pain was in the past, the most painful moments of your life, God wants to take those and then use them for his purposes. Whatever your misery was, whatever misery thing that happened, perhaps it could be your greatest ministry. I think of folks that have come out of alcoholism or drug addiction or things that have been people that have been victims in different situations and evil has been done upon them. Oftentimes God will take those things that were meant for evil and he can turn them and make them for good. You and I need a healthy perspective of our past to get a right perspective for our future. And so I think of the Apostle Paul's story. How about him? He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 9 through 10. He says, For I'm least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I, I persecuted the church. This is a guy who persecuted the church. And then he says this, though. It gives me great freedom to be me and to look at my past in a healthy perspective. He says this phrase, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. I think of my story and how I was a renegade and a rebel, a prodigal son. And when I look back at my life and I see all the pain that I created and the pain that I experienced in my own life prior to knowing Jesus Christ, I, I, I would have never want that for my kids. I, I don't want that. It's like I've got parenting glasses that can see with my kids go uh, five steps down this direction. I'm like, I've been there. I've done it. I know what you're about to do. I know what's down that road for you. Do not take it. If I could go back and change my past, would I? Yes. But if I look to God and I say, God, you've used my past in so many ways to reach more people for Christ and identify with more people and help my kids, I wouldn't change a thing. I am what I am, like the Apostle Paul says, by the grace of God. 
So how do you and I look at our past, but then say to God, I want you to accomplish a divine purpose from my past, whatever it is. Number one, you and I have to realize just how bad your past really was. The Apostle Paul is going to be completely uh, politically incorrect, and you and I want to believe that all people are basically good and and our past really wasn't that bad. That's not Christian theology. Let's look at what the Apostle Paul says. He says this, and verse 1, chapter 2, and you were dead, everybody say dead, You were dead. You were really dead. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now work in the sons of disobedience. Two things you need to know about your past. Number one, you were spiritually dead. Apart from Jesus Christ, you were spiritually dead. As an unbeliever, you did not need resuscitation. You needed a resurrection. You needed a brand new life. The hope is, and the goodness of God is, is that God takes spiritually dead people and makes them alive. And there is life change. That's why when we baptize folks, it says, I am what? New. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. The apostle Paul tells us that we just got to realize how bad we really were. See, you and I don't want to believe that. I don't want to believe that people are bad. I don't want to believe that people are all spiritually dead apart from Jesus. I mean, I, I, I don't want to believe that, but I'm going to believe that because that's what the Bible says. Culture tries to teach us that everybody's basically good. In a recent study, there was a question that was asked to more than, listen to this, 800,000 people. And here was the question. Are you above or below average in your ability to get along with other people? I'll repeat the question to 800,000 people. Are you above or below average uh, in your ability to get along with other people? Guess how many people said they were below average? Just somebody shout it out. Five? Yeah, no, there's not 10, not five, none. Nobody wanted to admit that they were below average. And the reality is, is that you and I both, we don't want to believe that, but let's look what the scripture says. It says that we were spiritually dead, that we're incapable in a sense. Uh, dead people can't do good things. The world is lost without Jesus Christ. But it also says that there's, there was this, we were sons of disobedience. And it says that we followed the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. I think one of the challenges that you and I face is that we live in a world that is being influenced and by demonic powers that are supernatural, that are not good, that are not godly. It's demonic and it's satanic. You, when you see violence on TV and murder in mass numbers like you see in the media, you need a category to say, that's evil. And this is the result of allowing uh, there to be a world where Christ doesn't resurrect people and give them new life and new hope and new redemption. And you and I have to realize that your, your past was bad, spiritually dead, disobedient. Verse 3, among whom you all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What does that mean? It means that there was this depravity that our passions, that our desires, our mind has been, apart from Jesus Christ, it's twisted, it's depraved, it's distorted. 
uh, the, the Catholic uh, uh, saint that or the Protestants and the Catholics have both anchored Christian theology upon is St. Augustine, and he came up with the theological doctrine called total depravity. I think another helpful word for it might be total inability. And what that means is, is that apart from Jesus Christ, you're totally unable, incapable, spiritually dead, not needing a resuscitation, but needing a resurrection. You can do no good apart from Jesus Christ intervening into your life. And you say, well, what about my sweet little cute little babies when they're born? And I say to you, I say, well, let's look what the scripture says. It says, the desires of the mind and were by nature children of wrath. Like some of you like say, oh, I've seen my baby. That baby has wrath. I've seen my baby. You don't have to teach a child to hit. You don't have to teach a child to lie. You don't have to teach a child to say, mine. Some of your children came out like Schmeagel. I love children, don't get me wrong, but... I'm being completely politically incorrect, following in the Apostle Paul's teaching here and telling you this is where you were. Why get Jesus if you don't need saving? What's a good use of a Savior if you don't need saving? Every one of us before Jesus Christ, totally lost, totally disobedient, incapable of doing good, depraved, doomed, and spiritually dead. That's just not good news. We were children of wrath, according to Ephesians 2, 3. Psalms 51 says, in sin, my mother conceived me. Romans 5, 12 says, sin entered through the world through one man and spread to all men. Romans 3, 23 says, we've all sinned. And 1 John 1, 18 says, he who says he has no sin is a liar, having deceived himself, and the truth is not in him. That's a politically incorrect, abrasive statement, but it's helpful it actually gives me some handles to hold on to that when I see the horrific tragedies on TV, I'm like, the world is screwed up. I hate evil. God does too. And all of humanity is lost without the redemption and the work of Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible says. You and me, we got to realize just how bad our past really was. Oh no, I went to church. I did that. Good. The prophet Isaiah says, all your righteous deeds are like filthy rags to me. You can't do good to get to heaven. You need good, and that good is Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul is trying to level the playing field here to say, we're all kind of screwed up. And, and so this idea that's a, a, a total depravity or maybe perhaps a better word, total inability, it's the concept that the Catholics have upheld. And by the way, the Protestants and Catholics have probably more in common than they do differences because we shared more than 1,500 years together in our church. And then, and then in, the, in, in the 1400s, 1500s, you have the Protestant Reformation, and it was needed, and it is needed, but this doctrine called total depravity or total inability is a cornerstone that helps us shape a worldview to say the world's screwed up. The prince of the power of the air, spiritually dead, we're lost without Jesus. This necessitates the need for evangelism, but it also necessitates to take a moment and to go, let's look what Jesus has done. The Apostle Paul says this, number two, if you want to see how God can use your past for his purpose, you need to see this. Number two, don't ever forget how good God is. I don't know what you're going through right now, but say it's a hard time. You got to look back and go, Lord, at least I'm saved. At least you've redeemed me. At least, at least I can see your goodness. 
And the apostle Paul is going to write to the church in Ephesus, and he says this, verse 4, he says, but, and it's a big but, he says, verse 4, he says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his, of the great love, not a little love, not a small love, not just love, just a great love with which he loved us, even when we were what? Dead. And Paul put himself in, those, in, that, in that accusation, in that statement. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Number one, don't forget how God is, how good God is. Realize God loves you. And I think that's good because I, and I think I, I want you to understand that the, the, the loving you part is not a, uh, the eight billion whatever, uh, the, the, the amount of Christians all around the world or whatever, just this mass number of believers as God looks at his local church and believers. It's not a corporate love connection. It's an individual. He loves you. He, he knew you before you were formed. He knows your past. He knows your present. He knows your future. And God loves you. And he's rich in mercy. And you and I need to remember that when we screw up, that we have a God who's merciful. We have a God that intervenes and he can make us alive and, and we're spiritually dead. And even though it seems like maybe we want to take more part of the glory from our personal past story, you got to remember, man, God was at work in all that. Remember one time I was at a party house and my life was a, a wreck and I was in my, uh, a, a young man searching and I walked away from the Christian faith. And I remember I left this party and I walk outside and I'm feeling completely and utterly empty and in despair. All my friends are inside this party house late at night. And I look up and I see the powerful stars and I hear God say, so this is your life. And I remember thinking, yeah, this is my life and it sucks. And then my friends yell out from the house and the door opens and smoke, smoke pours out. And they're like, yeah, Ryan, come on in, dude. And I'm like, later, God. And I go inside. And now when I look back at my past, I'm like, man, my story is not a story of Ryan getting on the moral fitness program, but it's a story of God's intervention and going, no, no, Ryan, I spoke to you. I ministered to you. I sent that person for you. I came to you when you were ignoring me. I sent that individual. You heard that message. And when I put the divine tapestry together, I see this lifestyle of going, holy smokes, God was after me from day one. And so don't forget how good God is. You can't let your past be defined by you, but you can use your past to say, I want it to refine me, to make me who I am by the grace of God. Verse six, and he says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You just might be a trophy for God. Your trouble might be just one glorious testimony for others to see. Maybe he just wants uh, you to, in the hard time to go, look, I want you to depend on me in this hard time because I need you to comfort others with the same comfort that I'm giving you to comfort others who are in trouble. 
Sometimes your pain becomes one of the greatest purposes that you could do. You think of all these organizations and institutions where you have folks that have started entire ministries or programs because they've gone through this horrendous past. So something's happened to them or something's happened that they've decisions that they've made. Don't ever forget how good God is. God has raised you. You're safe. You're secure with God. The Apostle Paul says that. In verse 8, he'll also learn is that for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not a, a your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. You need to realize God saved you. You didn't save yourself. He did the saving. Yeah, sure, you responded. That's part of that effectual calling. The Holy Spirit entered into your life and you responded and you did on your end everything that you knew to do. The Bible says if you believe in your heart, you confess with your mouth, you will be, what? Saved. So you do your part. Jesus says, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I'll give you, what? Rest. So you gotta go. But he's the, he's the power in the bones and in the body to say, get up and go. I'm here to help you out. God saved you. You were spiritually dead. You didn't need a resuscitation. You needed a resurrection. The old is gone. The new has come. And here's the deal. Verse 10, your salvation is not just for a blessing that you get to have eternal life, which that's great. And I, and I, want, I want eternal life in heaven. And every time I get down or discouraged, I start thinking more about heaven. And the Bible says, keep an eternal perspective. And every time I go to a place that I love and I'm in the beautiful creation, I'm like, God, I'm going to miss this. I wish I could spend more time out here. I hear the voice of my Lord and Savior saying, it's going to be better in heaven. Don't worry. Um, you're not saved just to enjoy God. You're saved to serve God. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship. The apostle Paul knows this. Oh, he's been worked on. He's been worked over. He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. You and me were created for good work, not bad work, but good work. The business that you belong to, the team that you're a part of, the, the family that you're in, uh, some of these things are issues in life that you've been dealt a certain level of cards, and that's what you got to work with. You were born into this family, born into this time frame. Then there's other things that you can control, like I'm going to get this job, or I'm going to take that job, or I'm going to get involved in this ministry, or that church, or whatever be the case. But all of it, you have to realize that God's created you and made you, and he's prepared you for good works. And it says that he prepared beforehand that we should, what? walk in them. Let me tell you something, friend. God's preparing you right now. He's preparing you for a future purpose. And if you can accept that, you'll say, God is good, man. He's good. And I can't even see all the goodness of God right now, but I'm just going to trust what the scripture says that he's preparing me. He's preparing me for something great. I think back of the life of Moses. God spent 40 years working on this guy. 40 years working in Moses before he could work through Moses. See, at the beginning of his ministry, Moses was prideful and dependent and on his own strength. He had anger issues. He was a violent man. He kills an Egyptian, flees Egypt. Hardly a successful way to start a ministry. Murder. 
It goes on, but during those 40 years, uh, he, next 40 years, he humbles himself, serves as a shepherd in the desert, and experiences God in his life, and he experiences God working in him so that he might be, God might work through him and prepare him for more than 40 years of magnificent ministry. Some of the most uh, uh, highlighted ministry of, uh, of the Israelites. Or I think of David, who was anointed king, and he was a youth, but he did not gain the throne until he suffered for many years in exile. Or how about the apostle Paul, who spent three years in Arabia after his conversion, no doubt experiencing God's deeper work to prepare him for ministry. God has work to do in us. He's prepared us. And yesterday's trouble is perhaps tomorrow's greatest testimony for you and me. Our pain from the past is perhaps one of the greatest purposes God wants to work in and through us. Remember how good God is. God is preparing you, and he has prepared you. Number three, remember that you were once separated. The Apostle Paul is repeating himself at some level and giving some clarity as well. He had already said, you know, hey, if if you want to allow God's purposes to come through in your past, you need to just... Think back, remember how bad you were. But then I want you to see, just let's look at how, God, how good God is. But now again, he repeats back in verse 11. He's talking about remembering that we were separated. Let me just read through all of the passages, and then I'll try to explain them. Verse 11, he says, therefore, remember. He wants us to remember. He says, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles, that's everybody who's not a Jew, You Gentiles, he's talking to the church in Ephesus, which by the way, there was a lot of disunity in the church in Ephesus among Christian Jews and then Christian Gentiles. And there's racial hostility, there's racial tensions, there's ethnic challenges, there's economic challenges, they're a diverse group of folks. He says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. And he says, verse 12 again, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So there comes some confusion perhaps, maybe about the the Jews and the Gentiles and all that. So let me help walk through that for a minute or two. First of all, you need to know that the Jews have always been God's chosen people. So even even today in North America's uh, uh, interest in Israel, I would say is founded in a biblical principle and ideal that God has a special plan for Israel. Starting, uh, you know, one of the big covenants was the Abrahamic covenant that God promised Abraham that he'd make him a great nation and that he would be a blessing to all people. God has a special plan for Israel. Um, the challenge has been with the nation of Israel, and I'm speaking to you as a Protestant, a pastor, Christian, Jesus-loving, Messiah-believing believer that believes Jesus is the Messiah. The problem with Israel is, unfortunately, they, they failed to be that light to all nations. God has always called Israel to be a light among all other nations. In Isaiah 42, 
Chapter 49, chapter 60, chapter 62 is about the special significant role that God has called Israel to be a light among all other nations. Unfortunately, they failed. Even here's a classic example. The prophet Jonah is a classic example of the failure and some of the attitude that was going on in the church in Ephesus. If you remember with Jonah, Jonah is a prophet who's called by God. He's an Israelite called by God to go to where? Nineveh. And he's called to preach the gospel and to tell people that they can turn from their sins and find forgiveness. But Jonah doesn't really care for these folks. Why? Because they're Gentiles. They are not Jews. And so he doesn't want God's forgiveness for these people. He wants God's judgment and wrath. That attitude was actually fairly common within the early church. If you were Jew, you were superior. If you were a Jew, you are God's chosen person. If you were a Jew, then you got special rights, special privileges. You could look down on everybody else. In fact, I'll go so far to say, as research has showed, that there were some Jews that were Christian Jews even that had this distorted idea that the Gentiles were like half-breeds and created by God, perverted view, created by God to fuel the fires of hell. That's how bad it was. And what Paul's saying is, is this is ridiculous. He, he's addressing some of the tension that we need to remember that they, they were separated. There was these tensions. There was this idea of, as well as, as we read about this issue of circumcision. And, and God meant it as a sign or a symbol of distinctiveness. There were also many other dietary laws that instituted so that Israel might stand out and be different from all other nations. And what happened was that the Jews began to alienate all other ethnicities, and they went so far to believe that you had to be uh, circumcised to be saved. I don't know who did the checks on that, but they're not good. You know, but that's not even true. Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, uh, was saved before he was circumcised, according to Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, and the apostle Paul points that out. There's some, 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 some tensions here. And then you see that there, he's, Paul is trying to say that we were, we were all separated. Uh, we were all in need. The, the Greeks and the Gentiles were really not much, that much better at this time. They were pretty much racist. There was a Roman statesman, uh, Circio, once said, all men can be divided into two classes, Greeks and barbarians. So for a first century Christian church in Ephesus, you have Jewish Christians, they believe in Jesus the Messiah, uh, but they're very racist towards everybody else. Then you have Greeks who are very proud Greeks and Romans. They, they, come, they have a Roman citizenship. They believed basically there were Greeks and then everybody else was a barbarian. So you can imagine the tensions that were there. They themselves saw themselves as superior to everybody else. But here's what you need to know. God's heart has always been unity. In Genesis 12, 3, we have the Abrahamic covenant. God raised up Israel to be a blessing to bless everybody else. In Psalm 67, it's piggybacked in the psalmist declares, and it's what's been called the, the theological category called the mission of God, meaning what's God's mission? And it says that God blesses people and saves people so that they can be a blessing. And then that's carried through into the New Testament and into the church. Why are we saved? To do good work. But we got to remember we were once separated. 
So the, the reality is, is that we're going to see uh, next week when I go through chapter three in the mystery, Paul's going to spend his life making sure that everybody understands that this gospel, this good news is for all people, Jews, Gentiles, black, white, they are precious in his sight. And that's the gospel. That is the good news. It doesn't matter. We have, you can, in the church, you ought to be able to find economic diversity, ethnic diversity, educational diversity, political diversity, and there's this rally point called Jesus Christ. And the apostle Paul wants to remind him they were once separated from what? These Gentiles, these folks that felt outside. They were in many ways without Christ, without a promise, without hope, without God. And that's you and me. The Apostle Paul wants to remind us that that was you and me before we knew Jesus Christ. We were without Christ. The worst thing it could ever be in our life is we have a Christless eternity where there is no Jesus. To spend eternity in hell and torment is what the Bible teaches. There is heaven, there is hell, there is one pathway to Jesus Christ, to heaven, and that is through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And the reality is, is Paul's kind of telling these guys like, hey, all of you were separated. The worst parts of my life, separated from the life of God and, and the love of God. Best parts of my life, with God. God, the Bible says that we have the Holy Spirit and that he's with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Everywhere I go, even in the dark places, even in the hard places, God's there. The 9-11 memorial cross that you see outside, that's a symbol and a sign that God's with you in the hard times. When those towers fell to the ground, what emerged out of the rubble was a cross. No, nobody built that cross. That was God's sign and symbol to say, I'm there with you. Without Christ is the worst life. Without a purpose, without hope, can't get any worse than that. Without hope, you take somebody's hope, they don't have a drive to keep going. What does the Bible say is that the Holy Spirit will fill us up with hope. Some of us need a fresh dose of hope today, and the Holy Spirit can do that. You, you remember that you were once separated without this hope and without God. And number four, to allow God's, your past to be a part of God's great purposes, you need to look at what God has done. It's looking back and going, okay, God, what have you done? Some of you, maybe you write in your journal and you look back and you say, Lord, I want to thank you for working in my life, removing that heart of stone and giving me a heart of flesh. Thank you for giving me more patience. Thank you for giving me more perseverance. Thank you that you've, you've blessed me and given me more wisdom and helped me overcome some of these foolish choices that I've made. Thank you that you've helped me and empowered me to overcome all the evil that's been done against me. Thank you, Lord. I thank you what you've done. Here's what the Apostle Paul says in verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Brought near where? To God's people, the life with God, the love of God. Look what God has done, verse 14, for he himself is our peace. The apostle Paul says, all peace centers and starts with Jesus Christ. It's a relational peace. It's a horizontal peace that's going to enable the church to navigate through diversity, but yet have unity. It's a horizontal uh, peace, but it's also a vertical peace. Uh, the worst a situation you could find yourself is in question, is God angry with me? Is God going to come against me? The Bible says, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. 
walls need to fall down when you're a Christian. You quit fighting, let go of the factions and the tensions. It's not worth it. And and so there's a, a relational component to this. And he says in verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. God's a peacemaker. He brings peace into your life. Look what God has done. Peace is is what enables you to keep navigating through uh, whatever you go through. In verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God. There's that vertical relationship, that vertical peace in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You know, I don't know about you. Most people aren't like this, but before I knew Jesus Christ, I didn't like Jesus Christ. Because I was afraid that Jesus was just a a cultural myth or um, storyline that people used in order to control the masses. That's what I believed. I thought my parents were great people, moral people, but Jesus was just a, a good option. One of many, right? And if you followed him, you're going to have a pretty good life. But uh, I didn't believe he was real until I started to see that my life was a total dead end. And I accepted Jesus Christ not based on logic, but I accepted Jesus Christ based on incredible great needs. Something was wrong inside of me. I didn't have any peace. And then in later years, I started to question, maybe that was just an emotional response. And so I investigated all the claims in Buddhism and the Eastern religions and, and Islam and all that. And I came to a conclusion like, man, this Jesus thing totally makes sense. I'm glad I made that decision. Jesus Christ, uh, perhaps maybe you have an unrest or no peace in you. Well, the Bible says that we, Jesus is the peace. Maybe the peace you're looking for is Jesus. It says, verse 17, and he came and he preached peace to those who were far off and to those who were near. Jesus was preaching peace. And through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. In verse 19, here's where all the identity comes in. Look what God has done. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles. So this whole Christian concept of who Jesus is and the peace that he brings and how he can redeem you from your past and give you purpose for your future. It's not just the apostles. Look what he says. It was also the prophets. This whole mystery of the gospel, how God is good for all people, all those who trust him and turn to him. He says, Christ himself being the cornerstone and whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So what has God done? He's adopted you into his family. It's eternal adoption. It's not like he's going to kick you out and you're going to be an orphan again. Um, my wife and I adopted a little child, and I think it's, it's one of the coolest things that you could experience in experiencing the gospel of how God loves us. Because, uh, you know, and I've done a lot of things, like I've, I've baptized a lot of folks, I've done baby dedications, I've done a wedding ceremonies, I've done memorial services, I've done all the preaching and teaching, doing communion. Those are all wonderful things. And the two most powerful gospel experiences I've ever had in my life is this. Number one is get married, because boy, you better figure out how to forgive 
and show gospel love, or you just don't get a good marriage. And that same forgiveness is the kind of forgiveness God gives me and you. So you better figure that out. That's gospel love. The second one was adoption. Because if we didn't adopt her, where would she be? It's not like they go into the system because everything was good. No. They were lost. Deep trouble. Dire need. Intervention. Adoption. Restoration. No matter if the child says, I don't like the family, I'm leaving. You're adopted. You're, you're a rice. You get the name, you stay there. You're adopted, friends. You're not going anywhere. You can run, but you can't hide. God's adopted you. Sealed, deal, Holly Field, it's over. You're sealed, you're set. No matter where you go, no matter what you do, it's not like he's going to kick you out. Once you're in, you're in. Secondly, you need to realize you were made a citizen of God's kingdom, so let's make our city a little better. If this is truly, if we're citizens of God's kingdom, and the whole prayer was from Jesus, and we'll, we'll pray it next week, so don't miss next week. We're going old school on you, Catholic on you. We're going to recite the Lord's Prayer together. And it says this. It says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. Is it what? As it is in heaven. If we are citizens of God's kingdom, that means everywhere you go, you and me are like ambassadors. We're dignitaries. We, 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 we should be ambassadors for Jesus Christ in every job situation, every, every community involvement. And anytime you're feeling lousy or you're, not, you don't, you're confused about your responsibility, remember you're a citizen of God's kingdom and you're here to make this world a little better. And the last one is this, is realize that you're a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. And that this is a cool thing together. Oftentimes, I'll spend time with people and, and they think they need a counselor and I really don't have them great counsel to give them. I mean, I just try to point them to the Bible and point them to Jesus and tell them like, and then they say to me, man, I feel so encouraged and so refreshed. And then I usually tell them, it's just the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God. Wherever the Spirit is, there's what? There's freedom. So as a believer, you're this dwelling place. So when you go into a, a dysfunctional situation, sometimes it just gets more functional. When you go to a, an environment where there's not very much peace and there's hostility, and you're, you're just kind of like saying, Lord, I just want you to permeate and work through me. You bring peace because Jesus is your peace. And then people say, man, I just feel better being around you. Why is that? It's because you're a Christian. It's because Jesus has given you the Holy Spirit to permeate into your life. You're the dwelling place. There's not a temple you got to travel to. You're the dwelling place. The Holy Spirit doesn't reside in some temple off in Israel. The, the Holy Spirit resides with you and everywhere you go. And you're, you're, you're that temple. And guess what? The Bible says is that we're being built up together. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the privilege and the opportunity. I pray for your spirit to dwell in the church corporately, that this place would be a place of peace, that would permeate and penetrate all throughout the North Valley and all the businesses and all the homes from the boardroom to the classroom to the living room. God, might your peace rest on our homes and our lives and our businesses. God, and I pray that we would be that dwelling place individually, no matter where we go or what we do. Lord, we can just realize, Lord, you've done great work in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. To become a supporter of North Valley Community Church, Give today at northvalleychurch.org.